He is risen. He is risen. Back in 2010, I uh, attended a sunrise service in the village of Indu in Cameroon. And uh, I remember <laughs> they said, hey, meet us at 4 a.m. And I said, okay. <laughs> and so I, I go out the door and I see lights leading to the top of a hill. And I just hear voices singing. And uh, I followed the voices and I followed the lights. And we get to this big open field and uh, there's all these tires and they light the tires on fire, and there's this huge fire, and we're just singing about the risen Lord, and then the sun comes up, and I thought, oh, that's so beautiful. I mean, that, that is what the resurrection is. It's, it's about the darkness passing away and the light shining because the tomb is empty. Amen? Well, I have a big task before me this morning. I'm going to preach all of Romans in 30 minutes. The title of my sermon is The Resurrection of Jesus According to Romans. And here's the big idea. Those who trust in the risen King, the risen Savior, have a new King, a new verdict, get new power, can rest in their new hope and participate in a new vocation or job. I've always been a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia I've read them with Clark. We're about to start with Luke. Um, I think the most famous story, of course, is the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And if you've read this story, it's so interesting, and I'll try to expound on this here in a bit, but at the very end of the book, essentially, right, the story takes a surprising turn. This is when Aslan, the great lion king, who's a Christ-like figure, he dies in place of a child. A guilty child, Edmund. But then what happens? He's raised. He comes back to life. And where defeat seemed inevitable, there's now the promise of victory. There's now hope. And I want to point you to a dialogue that happens between one of the sisters. So, you know, four children. If you're not familiar, I can't summarize the whole story. But four children end up in this magical land, Narnia. Uh, when they get there, they realize things are not as they should be. Uh, the inhabitants of Narnia are living in an endless winter. There's a curse upon the land because of this evil white witch. She's the antagonist in the story. But then again, there's rumors of this coming king, Aslan. And Aslan does his kingly work. He dies in place of the guilty. And he's raised. And that is the game changer in the story. But I, I want to point your attention to this dialogue between Susan and Aslan. After the lion is raised, listen to what Susan says. She says, but what does it all mean? Like, she's surprised, she's in shock, she's in awe, but what, is, what does this mean? And listen to what Aslan says. Death itself would start working backwards. Oh, it's brilliant. Death itself would start working backwards. And here's what you have to see in the story. Aslan's resurrection has implications for all of Narnia. After he's raised, and this is what's so brilliant about the story, the final battle's like this. You almost miss it. It's like a page long. It's not this long, drawn-out battle. He's raised, and it's basically over. But before then, before the final battle, he goes into the land. And because of this curse, the inhabitants of Narnia have been turned into stone. And the risen king goes and he breathes his breath. He breathes out on these stone, these statues, 
and they come to life because his resurrection means their resurrection. His life means life for them. And then you have the final battle, and it's over. And that's it. We, too, who trust in the risen King, Jesus Christ, have been made alive. His life means life for those who trust in him. His resurrection means resurrection for us. Amen? And not only that, we get a new vocation. We, too, get to breathe out the gospel message on the lost and the spiritually dead and pray that the Spirit would give them what? Life. Life. You know, Aaron prayed it so well this morning, and I hope you were listening, that the resurrection of Jesus is everything. It is everything. What we see in the Bible in places like 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, and 1 Corinthians 15, 12-34, is that not only is the resurrection at the heart of the gospel message, but without it, without the resurrection, the gospel is lost. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no good news. That's what gospel means. Essentially, what the Bible teaches is that if Christ wasn't raised, we have no good news, no hope, no salvation, no forgiveness, and we are still lost and spiritually dead in our sins. The good news, you ready for it? Christ has been raised. He is risen. But here's the question. Why is this good news? I think if I asked most of you, most Christians, if we polled most Christians and we asked them, why is the resurrection good news? What does it actually mean for Christians today? I think most would say, I don't know. I believe it. I know it's good news, but as far as what it means for my day-to-day life, I, I really don't know. And that's, that's what Paul answers in Romans. He answers that question, what, not only what does the resurrection mean for Jesus, and we're going to start there, but what does the resurrection mean for the church? What does it mean for our present, and what does it mean for our future? So we're going to take a journey through Paul's, I think, most famous letter. I think we can say that. It's his most famous letter, Romans, to answer these questions together. And if you're familiar with Romans, it's 16 chapters long. The resurrection is peppered throughout. And we're going to follow Paul's order. We're going to follow the path he's laid out before us. First up, what does the resurrection mean for Jesus? Christ was raised. So what? What does that mean for him? Here's point number one. The resurrection means a new king. It means a new king. That's why I had our brother read Romans 1, 1 to 4. That's everything. We have a new king. But the question I want to leave you with, is he your king? Is he your king? Here's Romans 1, 1 to 4. Listen carefully, especially to verse 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, a sent one, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised. So this good news was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning who? His son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and, here it is, verse 4, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So verse 4 is the key verse in our passage. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his what? By his resurrection. And if you know the Jewish world in the first century, Son of God was the primary title used by Jews for the Messiah, the promised king. So when they spoke about the Son of God to come, people knew, oh, you're talking about the Messiah to come, the promised king. 
Jesus' resurrection from the dead was proof or evidence that he was indeed the promised Messiah, the promised king, God's solution to deal with the worldwide problem of sin. The Old Testament, and we'll go kind of back and forth this morning, but the Old Testament promised that the Messiah, the king to come, he would fight for God's people. He would rescue God's people. Think of it this way. Jesus' kingly mission, his kingly battle was what? We talked about it two days ago, three days ago. It was the cross where he dealt with sin on our behalf. The resurrection means that his kingdom mission was successful. In the battle won, Jesus is king, but is he your king? Is he your king? Furthermore, and I think we would agree, I hope so as Christians, that Jesus' rule is broader than one specific geographical location. His kingship, his rule is all-encompassing. He is the true Lord or sovereign of all. Recall the Great Commission in Matthew 28 before Jesus calls his disciples to his worldwide mission to make disciples. What does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This he declares after his what? After his resurrection. The Father has given Jesus, the Son, this authority based upon his faithfulness to his saving mission. The resurrection is Jesus' vindication. It stands as divine recognition that Jesus is the true king. You know, we see these themes in the life of David. If you carefully read, now don't miss this, 1 Samuel 16 to 18, what do we see? We see that David is anointed king. That's 1 Samuel 16. He's recognized as king by the prophet Samuel. The spirit descends on him, right? And then there's the battle. So there's the theme of kingship, and then there's the battle against who? What's the giant's name? Goliath, and he's slain. And then after that, there's exaltation, because in chapter 18, the people sing David's praises, right? What, what do they say? This is, I think, verse 7. Saul has killed his what? His thousands, but David his tens of thousands. They praise David. They exalt him. After defeating sin, death, and Satan at the cross, Jesus is vindicated by his resurrection. His resurrection declares his royal status as the conquering king. It means that the battle has been won. Jesus is king. And I hope we get this. Before Jesus came to earth, what was he? He was the eternal Son of God reigning in heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But the resurrection declares him to be the promised Messiah sent by the Father to rescue his people. Let me just park in Isaiah. Isaiah, more than any book, I think, in the Old Testament, points ahead to the coming king. And it gives us hints of what to expect, right? So in Isaiah 35, it says, hey, you'll know the king because when he comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the lame will stand up and leap like deer. And those who have their ears stopped, they're going to be able to hear now. And when you think about Jesus' ministry, he's, he's opening blind eyes and he's healing the sick and he's call, causing the, the lame to walk. And, and those are evidences that the king has come. And if that's not good enough, you look at Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61, and it says you'll know the king because the Spirit of God is going to descend upon him. 
And what happens at Jesus' baptism? The Spirit of God descends upon him, marking him out to be the promised king. And not only that, in Isaiah 53, verse 11, we see that you'll know the king because, yes, he'll die, verse 5, but he's going to come back alive. And so Jesus is raised. He comes back, declaring him to be the, the what? The king. He's king. He's king. The resurrection means Jesus is king. But is he your king? Is he your king? What does the resurrection mean for us? Namely, for those of us who trust in Jesus. Point number two. And again, we're just going to move through Romans. Oh, this is so good. The resurrection means... A new verdict. A new verdict. Romans 4.25, Paul, speaking about Jesus, says, Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised. He was raised. He was raised from the dead. He was resurrected. He was raised for our justification. I can't imagine anyone on trial waiting in great anticipation for the judge to declare them guilty. Please judge, please just say guilty. I, I desire. No! They want to hear what? What's the opposite of guilty? They want to hear innocent. And that's what justification is all about. Maybe this is a, a foreign word to you justification. Justification is all about this legal declaration that you're no longer guilty, but innocent. And, and maybe you're wondering. <laughs> What does it mean that Jesus was raised for our justification? Again, justification refers to that legal declaration that one is no longer guilty before God, but right or innocent before God. It means a new verdict. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, a new verdict has been spoken over your life. Amen? If you've been justified through faith in Jesus, you've been declared righteous. It's a change in legal status, no longer guilty, but innocent or righteous. Paul helps us to see this in Romans 5.1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified, declared right, we now have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been justified by faith in Jesus, you're no longer an enemy of God. You have peace. You're a friend of God. But what's the relationship between Jesus' resurrection and the declaration that we who trust in him are no longer counted as guilty, but innocent or righteous? Here's how this works, I believe. This is really important. What does the resurrection mean for believers? We have a new verdict spoken over us. No longer guilty, but innocent. Here's how this works. Think representation. What's true of the king is now true of the king's people. Amen? What's true of the king is now true for the king's people. The resurrection serves as Jesus' vindication, the declaration that he is perfectly righteous. He perfectly obeyed the law, doing what we could not do. He perfectly obeyed the Father. What did he do? He went to the cross on our behalf. And now he stands, now he stands, now He stands in the Father's presence, righteous, victorious, justified. And that same declaration is now spoken over those who belong to the King. His vindication is now our vindication. His righteousness is now our righteousness. 
His justification is our, our justification. In this, through faith in Him. I love the David and Goliath story. If you're familiar with ancient battles, instead of having mass casualties, oftentimes two nations would pick their hero, their greatest fighter. And if this side won, this side had to now join forces with this side, right? They had to surrender, admit defeat. And so again, who's the champion of the Philistines? Goliath. And who is the champion of Israel? Little David, right? The shepherd boy. But David wins. And what does that mean for all of Israel? They win. His victory is their victory. Christ was raised. He's been raised, justified, vindicated, declared righteous. And if he's your king, his victory is now your victory. Amen? Jesus' righteousness before the Father is given to those who trust in him. Amen. His righteousness is imputed to us. He took our sin at the cross, and now we get his righteousness. What's true of the king is now true for the king's people. Oh, he was raised. A new verdict. Number three. And I think we forget this one. The resurrection means new power. New power. Romans 6, 1 to 4. So we've looked at Romans 1. We've looked at Romans 4. And now Romans 6. I wasn't going to cover every verse. I don't have time for that. <laughs> what shall we say then, Paul says? Are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. May genoito. That's a very strong use of the Greek language. By no means. Are you crazy? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. His resurrection means new life, new power for his people. Now these are tough verses. These are tough verses. Simply put, Paul is saying Christians are to live differently. We are to no longer continue in sin because we've died to sin. But it's more than that. The good news is that we can live differently because of the resurrection. We can live differently. Again, that same language, what's true of the king is now true of the king's people. Christ has all power. He gives us power if we're united to him by faith to live differently. If you belong to Jesus then sin is no longer your master. Amen? Amen. You've died to sin, meaning the power of sin has been overturned in your life. The believer has new access to new power for new living in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is not saying that baptism magically invests us with new power. No, instead he is saying that what (laughs) baptism symbolizes... Our union with Christ means new power for the believer. Doesn't it make sense that if if you're united to the risen king, the all-powerful Lord, that we have new power? I love to vacuum. As a friend told me years ago, it's like mowing the carpet. And I love to mow our yard. I really do. I enjoy it. 
my kids sit on my lap, all three of them, I'm just kidding, that'd be dangerous, but one at a time. But vacuuming is kind of like mowing the carpet. I enjoy it. But what's going to happen if that vacuum cleaner is not plugged in? What's going to happen? Nothing is going to happen. It's not plugged into the power source. But once it's plugged in, it comes to life, right? There's power. There's a better illustration, and it's from Jesus in John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. And if you're connected to me, what? You're going to bear fruit. If we've been united to Christ by faith, the risen Lord, we have new power for new living, for our new king. Amen? Does that make sense? Through Christ's death on the cross, sin's power has been exhausted and sin's punishment paid. Because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we who trust in Jesus are now dead to sin, meaning we are no longer under its power. We are no longer its slaves. Because of the resurrection, we who have been joined to Christ by faith are now spiritually alive because Christ is what? He's alive. What's true of him is now true of us. And here's the kicker. Those who trust in the risen Savior enjoy and have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Tom Schreiner, a friend of Kelty's now, he wrote, believers are enabled to walk in newness of life because the power of Christ's resurrection has become theirs by virtue of their union with him. But it's much more, right? The resurrection for the church is much more than us being brought from death to life. It's much more than a new verdict being spoken over us. There's new strength. There's new power for holy living. You know, three years ago, my father-in-law had a heart transplant. They took out his heart. His heart wasn't working anymore. He coded twice on the table. He was in really bad shape. We thought we were going to lose John, but they found him a new heart. And once that new heart went in, John now has what? New energy, new life. I mean, new power. He's a different guy. He's dancing around now. I'm like, what happened to you, man? I got a new heart. And that's a great picture of what happens for those who trust in Jesus. We get a new heart. That's promised in the Old Testament, right? Ezekiel 36. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. I love 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, if you've been united to the risen, all-powerful Savior, you have new power for holy living by the Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives inside of his people. Amen? But how does this work? How do we take advantage of this power? That's an important question. The resurrection of Jesus means a new trajectory for those who have trusted in the risen king. Now, in the second half of Romans 6, Paul talks a lot about sanctification. What does that word mean? Sanctification simply means becoming more like Jesus in the way you think, in the way you speak, in the way you act. We now have new power for holy living, but how? I want to take us to John 17 in Jesus' prayer for his followers. He says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word 
is truth. Make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. Make them holy by your word. The Bible. The Holy Spirit works through the word of God, the Bible, to make Christians more like Christ. Amen? Now, when you're dead, when you're not united to Christ by faith, the Bible's nothing to you. You can't understand it. You have to have the Spirit. And now if you've been united to Christ and you have the Spirit, you can understand it. And not just understand it, but you're empowered by the Spirit to obey it. Amen? You have new sight and new power by the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Get in the Bible. Read the Bible on your own. Read it with a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Gather with the church every Lord's Day to hear read and to study and hear proclaimed the Word of God. Number four, the resurrection means new hope. So, so far we've seen the resurrection means, the resurrection of Jesus means a new king. Amen? It means a new verdict. It means new power. And number four, it means new hope. If you're feeling hopeless today, oh, please listen. Romans 8, 11. So we've looked at Romans 1, Romans 4, Romans 6, and now we're in Romans 8. Romans 8, 11, and then I'm going to read verses 18 to 25. Listen to what Paul says here. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of a new future, both for God's people and for God's creation. We must understand that death is the great enemy of God's people and of God's good creation. The, re- the resurrection, therefore, so what is the resurrection? Do you remember that quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? What does all this mean, Susan asked? Death is turning backwards. That's a reality for those who trust in Jesus. Death is turning backwards. The resurrection, therefore, is God's means of flooding the world with new creation. Imagine two men, both sentenced to 10 years in prison. The first man is told, as he steps through the gate, your wife and your children have just died. All your family is gone. In 10 years, when you get out, there's going to be no one waiting for you. The second man 
as he steps through the gate, is told, your wife and your children are alive, and they'll be here when you get out. Who's going to endure? Who's going to suffer well? The one with hope or the one without hope? If you know church history, the Roman world, the ancient world, they were fascinated by the early Christians at the end of the first century. Why? Because they suffered with such hope and poise. Violently. If you know your church history, they were thrown to wild animals. They were burned alive, and yet they sang to the Lord. They suffered with joy and hope and peace. How? Because of their what? Their hope. They knew the end of the story. They knew that this life would give birth to what? Resurrection life. A new heaven and a new earth. And resurrection bodies no longer given over to sin and death because Christ was what? He was raised. And maybe you're thinking, Chris, but the resurrection of Jesus is something that happened in the past. Yes, this is true, 2,000 years ago. But it has incredible earth-shattering implications for both our present and the future. The resurrection of Jesus means a new existence and a new hope for those who trust in Jesus. Again, new bodies no longer given over to sickness and disease. I think of our, our dear sister, Versi, who is soon to be with the Lord. Praise God for that, by the way. Amen? She's going to see him face to face. But this body that is breaking down, that is not the end of her story. She's trusted in the resurrected king, which means one day she's going to have a new body. No longer given over to sickness and disease. But what do we do in the interim as we await our resurrection, as we await the return of the... What do we do now? Our final point, point number five. The resurrection means a new vocation. Now to Romans 10. So again, we've looked at Romans 1, 4, 6, 8, and now Romans 10. Verses 14 and 15. The resurrection means a new vocation, a new job. For the believer, you have a new job. You've been fired. I'm just kidding. But you have a new job. This is your job if you're a believer in Christ. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There is no greater message than the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And those who trust in Jesus are tasked with taking this good news message to the world. Again, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Everybody look down at your feet. Look down really fast. How do they look? I'm just kidding, by the way. Some of you did that. There's nothing under your seat. This is not a giveaway, but are your feet beautiful? Do you have beautiful feet? Are they busy about the king's mission, taking the gospel to the lost in your schools, in your neighborhoods, in your places of work, even in your homes? Let the world see those beautiful feet, the feet of gospel messengers. I recently took Clark to a Houston Rockets game, and we were standing outside in this long line waiting to be uh, led into the building, into the arena, and about maybe 10 or 15 guys in front of me, I, I'm like, oh, snap. Clark, look at those shoes, man. Look at those feet. He was wearing a pair of retro Michael Jordans. 
in like pristine condition. And everybody started, like, they heard me, like, people were like, oh, man. Like, so everybody's now looking at this guy's feet. I drew attention to his feet. And they were nice. But how much more the feet of those who bring good news, amen? Let's put it all together. Why trust in Jesus? Why trust in Jesus? Because he's the king, the savior king, the one who broke the curse, defeating the enemies of sin, death, and Satan. The one, the only one who can make us right before God. Those who trust in the risen king are declared right or innocent before God. Those who trust in the risen king enjoy relational peace with God. No longer enemies, but friends, and more than that, adopted into his family, children of the one true God. Those who trust in the risen king are empowered by the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead to live differently. Those who trust in the risen King have the hope of resurrection life and have been tasked with a new vocation to tell others the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to save sinners. Again, those who trust in the risen King have a new King, enjoy a new verdict, get new power can rest in their new hope and participate in a new vocation. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, please listen to Paul's words in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's the promise? You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. What does that mean? Declared right or innocent. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Have you done that? You can do that today. You can confess your sin. You can trust in the risen king and enjoy a new verdict, a new king, new power, new hope, and a new vocation. But only in Christ. Only in Christ. Only in Christ. Amen? I hope, church, you're encouraged. I hope if you're not a believer that you'll think about what you heard and you realize, oh, in Christ there is a new verdict. No longer guilty but innocent. And I hope, church, talking to you again, that you will take this good news message to the world and declare the risen King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus whom you sent into the world to live a perfect life, to die a horrific death in our place, and to be raised from the dead. And we thank you, Father, that the resurrection means that Jesus is King and that the cross worked and that those who trust in the risen King, Jesus Christ, are given a new verdict, new power, new hope, and a new vocation. We thank you for these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.